2: Chapter 5. Seven Minutes. October 3rd, 2005. Laura had never studied her own lap so extensively before. She had never regarded each fold of her jeans with such lengthy stares and gazes. But on this day, with hours having passed and with her arms tied flat to her sides at the back of a dining chair, all she could think to do was peer down at herself and absorb the valleys and lines of the folding denim as it surfaced from either side of her thighs to meet on top of her legs. She imagined the deep blue, painted and oily grey in the night's darkness, to be a sea shifting and drawing its waves over one another whenever she moved her legs. It was all she could do to stop from crying again. When she cried, the tears would trace themselves down her nose and merge with whatever had freed itself from there. And her being unable to scratch or wipe the discomfort away was dreadful. She ached, and she had not slept at all, and she hadn't been able to use the toilet in all this time so she stared at her lap. It didn't seem like the right thing to be thinking about, but then there was nothing she could think about that seemed right. Her captor was likely to kill her at any moment, and now she couldn't shake the shame that her dying minutes and hours were spent thinking about itches and bodily discomfort, and about her jeans in the form of her lap. These weren't thoughts or notions worthy of being her last. Then, as the night began to fade away, Her mind turned a corner, and the wallowing stopped all at once, replaced by something more pragmatic. In the early dawn, Laura Ray stopped being sad and afraid and started feeling angry, hard done by.
3: Why is this happening to me? She wondered. What is happening here?
2: She looked up from her lap and stared hard at James, eyes probing for clues, inwardly screaming for answers, though she knew not to let anything escape for fear of being gagged again. The smell which pervaded the whole room and writhed its way onto everything like a thick fog, was not one she was able to get used to. It made her nostrils sting and her mind cloud over. It was disgusting. There was the smell and the discomfort and the tape binding her to the chair and the rising sun and the wrinkles in her jeans as they surrounded her lap. And that was all there was, all these insignificant thoughts jostled for supremacy none winning, and none offering any solution. And that, she supposed, was what made her angry. James remained stationary in his chair across the kitchenette from Laura, in silence. Occasionally, he would leaf through the small leather book in his hand, or he would look at Laura intently for a moment, or he would sigh loudly as though he were about to follow it with a sentence, though nothing ever came. And that was how most of the night had passed in sad, dark silence. Now, eventually, the daylight was returning in earnest, the birds so nonchalant in their chirping as to almost offend James. Why don't they know? he wondered. It seemed wrong that they could not sense the gravitas of the day rising up ahead of them. He looked fearful, which confused Laura. She scrunched her face at him which finally elicited a response. I suppose you're still wondering why, James asked. I've not explained things properly, have I? She wanted to choose her words very carefully, but nothing clever or helpful came, so Laura simply nodded and quietly issued,
3: I am wondering why.
2: James put the book onto the table, placing it on top of the plate, which he had brandished at her some hours before, and stood from his chair. He passed around behind her, and she felt him move to the window, though she could no longer see. She expected a blade or a blunt object to whistle through the musty air and slice the life out of her, but nothing of the sort arrived. Instead, James stood peering out of the window and sighed, his head pressed against the cold glass. You were so into us, he said. You really loved the idea of us. He stopped again knowing that there was no way of continuing without sounding insane. But then a thought arose in him, like a bottle landing upon the seashored coast of his mind. It didn't really matter. Morning was coming, and on this day there would be another solar eclipse. All he had to do was keep Laura safe from everything, including himself. Whatever happened thereafter would cease to matter. He would have fulfilled his purpose. He would have broken the loop. And it was this realisation that spurred him to continue his senseless rambles. You and I found commonality in
4: so many things, Loz. We loved the same films, the same music, the same people. We idolised the same values. And we both had the same idea of what love was. And that was why we fell so quickly into it. And that was why everything was such a whirlwind. You took to it so well. I took to it so well. This us... This thing that we made together, I'd never known anything like it."
2: Laura craned her head to see him. There was an earnestness in his voice, a tenderness, and it unsettled her to think that he believed so wholly in what he was saying. "'I'm so sorry I let it go to waste,' he said, and a lone tear left his cheek to rest on the windowpane. Though he'd drawn countless diagrams to try and explain the events he knew had happened, and the ones which he now expected to happen, there were no diagrams or drawings or notes he could ever summon to paper that would explain away the heartache and guilt in him.
4: I don't think I should have sent you those flowers. I don't think that was a good idea.
2: Maggie awoke, with another fierce hangover, and were it not for the flashing light in the room's far corner, she likely would not have done so at all for the duration of the day. On the inside of closed eyelids, that red light was ethereal and warm, exploding against the blackness like a lone firework, breathing itself into and out of life on a loop. The room was so dark that it seemed like the bulb of a distant lighthouse, appearing as such in a lucid dream as she climbed out of the depths of sleep. And so, eventually, her eyes peeled down from her skull, itchy and dry. She sat up, wearily, on the creaking futon, and tried to focus on anything solid, but everything was still awash in black. There was only the little red light, drawing itself in half-beats across the outlines of the nearby furniture and the top of the desk. It took a good moment, but then... Plainly and bluntly, it sank in. The sensor had fired. The man had returned. A slew of expletives ran through her mind, and she became all a flurry, a blur of motion, pulling clothes from floors and bags from sides and forcing boots onto impatient feet. She threw the curtains open and the blind up on the room's only window, to see that it was morning in earnest. Shit, she thought. Today was the day. She ran to the computer and wiggled the mouse so that its monitor might buzz back into life. The light, which flashed on a small device to the PC's right, was synced to a piece of software confirming, in no uncertain terms, that the sensor had been triggered, and when, and for how long. This time she knew it would not be a false alarm. This time it did not come as a surprise. Maggie swore at herself for having been so drunk, for sleeping through hours of James having been back on the scene. She scooped the dictaphone up from its hiding place under her coat on the floor by the futon and motioned to push the record button down hard, but her thumb slipped across the button and the device fell to the floor, breaking clean in two. There was no point trying to do anything about it. Instead, she set about attempting to dress several disparate parts of herself at once, threading arms into sleeves and legs into shoes simultaneously. And so, rightly, she was a mess even at the point of being ready, Her top, fluorescent shades of green, was mismatched against the deep blue of her skirt. Her eyes were sullen and bloodshot, and surrounded with the smears of dried mascara, a black swamp embedded into the wrinkles that drew deep valleys across her face. But there was no time to do any better. In the same motion, she grabbed her car keys and nodded at the photograph of George by the front door. It was an odd to say that she would be vindicated. It was a nod to ask that he be proud of her for being right but the man in the photo only stared blankly back at her offering naught but its toneless consistency as always perhaps on this occasion she would later surmise her late husband should have opted to animate himself upon the photo's paper or reach out from it or speak some word of warning she would later think about it often positing that if there was such a thing as god George might have haunted her into staying, into convincing her that leaving the house would lead to events that would shape the rest of her life.
1: Wednesday, September 20th, 1941. I have not slept, nor ate, since Hollis died two days ago. we have done little of anything except stare deeply at the sand in the shade beneath the plane's left wing, trying to wrap my mind around how many grains there might possibly be here, and what sort of journey each has been on. One day, long ago, these grains of sand may have been great boulders, or mountains, there may have been proud canyons beneath the ocean, but time has shaved them down to nearly nothing, brought them here and left them to waste, in that Sean and I have things in common with each and every grain. To my shame, I've left him around the other side of the vicar's fuselage, still lying there, still face down. I could not bear to do anything else, to see what kind of mess I'd made of him. But it doesn't matter, really. It doesn't matter. This is all wrong and pointless. What madful book is this? Why am I writing? Who will find these words? Likely no one is who. It's likely that I'll soon die, and that the plane and my body and that of Sean's will be buried in all these grains of sand. We'll be bored down to sand ourselves then, and no one will find this book, if you can call it that. It only has five entries, five stupid, short, pointless passages of text from a scared young fool, a murderer. Maybe, with that being the case, this text is a confessional, Maybe it's a justification. It's a poor excuse for either, surely, since I am not sure who I'm trying to convince of anything. Well, pointless as it is to continue, it feels difficult to stop now, which is strange because I have always stopped most things prematurely. The only thing is, continuing it means explaining events that I know do not make sense. I suppose the long and the short of it is this. Hollis is somehow still talking to me, or at me, I can still hear him screaming, he calls out my name even now in pained groans, and in between that he cites bible verses or spits hateful things about the parasite that took his wife, no it's not possible, that he is dead beyond doubt, but I still hear these things as real as anything else. I worry that I have lost it. This is why I have not slept. Why I've been counting sand and steeping my gaze upon the floor. I can't not. His voice is too much to hear. The remaining water will be gone before tomorrow's out. I won't last much longer. And I'm glad.
3: The person you think I am, Laura said. I know you love this person you're talking about, I know you did. And I can totally sense it, but it's not me, James. I'm not her. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I look like her. Maybe I remind you of her, but you have to listen to me. James?
2: James was half asleep now, sitting on the floor with his back against the kitchen cupboards and his head cupped in his hands. He was only half-listening, half-daydreaming about the old life, the life that was stolen from him for no reason he could muster.
3: James, I'm not her. I'm not her, James. I'm not her. I'm not her. I'm not her. J- I'm not fucking her. James!
2: At Laura's shifting and writhing and screaming, James lifted his head and stared at her with eyes that could have torched the room. Though it wasn't anger, as such, just an intense longing, a misplaced sense of injustice. He stood, walked over to Laura and clasped his hands across her mouth. Her head collapsed on her neck and she fell into another fit of sobs. He removed the hand and peered down at her, and then he said, You are Laura Ray. You are thirty-six
4: years old. Your parents are Janet and Nigel. Your brother is called Tom. You're right-handed but you used to be good with both feet when you played football at school. Your birthday is the 3rd of March. You dislike your boss, Sarah, because she takes too many cigarette breaks. You don't have any birthmarks, but you wanted one as a kid to help you stand out. Your favourite film is The Lion King, but when other people ask you, you say it's The Godfather. You can't drink shots or down pints, but I've seen you finish a whole litre bottle of rum by yourself. You and I met six years ago, in 1999 and we fell in love. We moved in together after only four months. You took down my posters. You bought this plate and a load like it, and then it smashed. We got married, Loz. You became Laura Logan, which you loved because you said it was like a comic book character's name. Everyone was there at the wedding. It was so much fun. My speech made you cry, which was good. Because that was the only point of doing it, I thought. Then we fought. We fought a lot over the message in this book. Over my dad.
2: Laura was frozen in stunned silence. She couldn't move or speak or even alter her facial expression from its glazed, wide-eyed stare. She couldn't find the words.
4: He showed me what I could do, though I didn't know how. And I slipped into mania because of it. And you hated me because of that. Rightly. And then we fought for the last time. Because you... you died, Loz. And it was because of me.
2: It was my fault." He paused for a while, and the silence sat heavily across both their shoulders. You were Laura Ray, and we loved each other once. But that doesn't matter. If you make it through today, then none of it matters. At this, James sank back into the dining chair opposing her, turning his thumbs and fingers over themselves on his lap and staring at their nervous, fidgety patterns. Laura's revolving states of confusion, shock and fear jostled for the lead slot at the forefront of her mind. This man... The man who had kidnapped her and bundled her into the boot of his car had just reeled off more intimate facts about her and more of her secret thoughts and misgivings than anyone had any right to know. He had mentioned things even Tom didn't know. It was impossible.
3: How long has he been following me?
2: She wondered. How deep did his surveillance go? Did he have her house bugged, her wires tapped? The smell and the cold and the greyness in the room seemed to swirl inwards on her oppressively. She felt sick. And then a plan formed. There was no doubting the sincerity in James's voice. He believed his words, though that was no fault of hers. And he believed that she was whoever he thought she was, even if she knew he had the main parts of her skewed and melded with someone else. Perhaps it was an ex.' Perhaps she resembled the wife who'd died. Whatever the case, he was clearly unwell, and she took a conscious choice then that she would not be killed by him thanks to some bizarre, misplaced obsession. Her scheme, such as it was, was not elaborate. It wouldn't need to be, and nor would it have time to be. But it might work if she could make a turnaround, a change of heart, sound convincing enough. Gingerly, she lifted her head to look at James. Her mouth opened and closed and drew air a few times without the right words to follow, until, with a final push of courage that caused a surge of hot adrenaline to piston around her neck, she began to speak the soft words of feigned acceptance.
3: It's okay, James. I know. I believe you. I can feel it, you know? I can feel that what you're saying is true.
2: She did not think herself believable, but maybe she didn't need to be. James's head had lifted all the same, returning to a lovesick gaze that cut right through her. His sunken eyes widened, his eyebrows raised.
3: It's okay, James,
2: Laura continued, shifting in her chair, trying to loosen the reams of tape that had her tied to it.
3: I think I know what you mean now. I think...
2: She searched her head for a platitude or a nothing that sounded up to his standards of grandiosity.
3: I think I always have. You do? I do. I get it. I think I get it. Can we talk about... about what to do next? Can we... talk about us?
2: The words made her sick to the pit of herself. Was it working? Was this convincing? She couldn't tell. Of course. James launched himself from the chair and began pacing wildly up and down in excitement.
4: Of course, Lars. I never thought... I mean, I hoped, but... Oh, Lars, I have so much to explain.
3: If
2: you're finally willing to
4: listen, I have so much to tell you.
3: Okay,
2: Laura said, nodding and smiling falsely, and finding herself shamefully intrigued over James's continued hesitance, to unravel whatever truths he thought he had locked away.
3: Okay, but please, can you untie me? I I want us to talk about this.
4: But you have to stay here. I've got to keep you here where you'll be safe. Just for today, you know? I'm so sorry, Lars. You've got to stay here, you know? There's nothing I can do about that because... because what happens wants to happen.
2: The words burst from him like a sob. He looked visibly shaken by whatever related thought had manifested itself behind his eyes.
3: Okay, okay, James. I won't go anywhere. I'll stay here. With you. But just... Please, can you untie me? I'll sit on the sofa with you and we can... We'll have a cup of tea or something, and we can talk about... us.
2: The lights behind James Logan's pupils danced. He so wanted to talk to Laura, to have her sit with him voluntarily, more than anything else in life, he so wanted to have some form of consensual engagement with her, in this flat, and just pretend things were as they should be, just for a while. He wanted it so much that he didn't think to second-guess her motives, or the way in which she had slipped so quickly from fearful and angry to understanding. He believed his words had done the trick. That his muddled words were enough to have convinced her of his earnestness, and of his ultimate aim, to protect her. And so it was that he moved to the kitchen drawer to retrieve a pair of scissors, before walking back to Laura's chair and shearing at the duct tape along her side, wondering as he went how he would begin a proper conversation with her, and how he would explain what he had done on the day of that terrible date. Laura sat, motionless as wary of the pointed scissor blades and their proximity to her torso as she was of James's rapid breathing and janky movements. They scratched and tore at the tape at the behest of nervous hands. Laura's mind raced with options. What would she actually do when she was able to move? Would she want to hear his story? He clearly had more to tell her. What was in the small leather book? Could she distract him with some kind of sexual advance? Would she want to try? A million little questions fired like pistons, and soon the tape loosened around her chest. As he cut the last of it free along her left flank, James stepped back, as if to admire his handiwork, beckoning with a gesture that Laura might stand up. Was this it? Her chance? Her heart grew louder and stronger and quicker in her chest, thumping the inside of her ribs so fast that the noise reverberating around her lower neck became a constant, low hum. Slowly, she stood from the chair, ripping the remaining strands of tape as she went, and pulling the chair slightly by the parts of her still attached to it, which she battered away with her right arm, peeling her body free. There, said James. Better? But Laura didn't respond. The bright, morning sky outside had suddenly darkened somehow, casting pitch shadows across them and stealing both of their attentions. James stared outwards, with a strange mix of fear and calm etched across his face, as though the sun's sudden disappearance was something godly. He muttered something quietly to himself, which Laura could not make out, then squinted his eyes tightly in what looked like a kind of prayer.
4: "'It's happening,'
2: he said. Laura knew that there would be no better moment to flee. Clenching one hand into a bald fist, she took a lunge forward, grabbed the plate from the table to her right and thumped it against the side of James's head, with all of the adrenaline and iron and will in her firing down the lengths of her arms and into her whitened knuckles. The plate smashed on impact and James fell backwards, twisting his wrist in the kitchen sink and collapsing to the floor beneath. And then Laura ran. She ran out of the room and along the hall, past the boarded-up room from which the horrendous smell was emanating so foully. She ran down the stairs so fast that she could have smashed her feet right through them, and then she lifted the latch and burst out into the street, which had turned dark as night, despite the freshness of the morning air filling her nostrils. She had made it outside. It was over. She was free.
0: Help! Help me!
2: She shouted. Laura! Loss! James yelled from the distance.
0: Help me! Help me!
2: Loss! Loss, come back!
3: Please, help!